so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast, the old friendly podcast here at the ERLC. Is that... (laughs) (laughs) Redo. Yeah. (laughs) The old friendly podcast. The old friendly podcast. Yes. Okay. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, actually not in the studio this week, but remote, not with me physically, obviously, but in the studio is Brent Leatherwood. The ever-faithful. The ever-faithful. The ever-faithful, right, because I'm here in the studio. That's right. That's right. Yep. And I'm I'm coming to you after having just come from the Tennessee Baptist Convention, the state convention here in the Great Volunteer State, and that was a great experience. And I'll, I'll talk more about that in our lunchroom segment. Oh, that, good. That's what I I'm do, bringing to the lunchroom. I little, do want to hear about it. A little, little foretaste of what is coming <laughs> that's right. in the lunchroom. What I want to know is, did you convince all of them to sing Rocky Top while you were there? No, but I, I'm, I'm... See, put a put a pin in that because I, that'll be part of my story uh, for the lunchroom. But yeah, there's there's a little rocky top portion of it that that was pretty funny to to watch in person. Okay, well, I look forward to hearing that. But before we get there to the lunchroom, let's take a look at what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Now, this week we've had an emphasis on adoption. It is near and dear to our hearts at the ERLC, but also to us as believers because of our belief in the doctrine of adoption, where God our Father has adopted those who have put their trust in Christ, uh, but also because we know what an incredible opportunity it is to love some of the most vulnerable among us, as the Lord calls us to. And this piece is by Rick Morton of Lifeline Children's Services, and it's titled, Four Ways the Church Can Approach National Adoption Month, Why It's Important to Embrace Both the Beautiful and the Hard Parts of Adoption. And I really appreciate this piece because it's true to what I've heard friends who have adopted um, that they've said, and they've said, you know what, the reality is that there are good very good and very hard parts of adoption. And we need to honor these children and their families and their birth mothers by acknowledging the losses of adoption, the griefs of adoption, bringing these things to the Lord and and bringing them to those who can help, whether it be experts in trauma or uh, fellow church members who help us bear uh, the burdens that we are carrying in the midst of, of adoption. Whatever it might be, it's just really important to acknowledge both the good and the hard. And I'm so glad that Rick Morton has brought that to our attention. Dr. Rick Morton, man, we we love him and we love the organization that he works at, Lifeline Children's Services. And we love to partner with them because, I mean, at least since we've known them under 
Herbie Newell's leadership there. He serves as the president and CEO. Lifeline, they are on a mission to connect families with children who need to be adopted. And we love partnering with them. And they have so many services that help just kind of wrap around those families that are going through the adoption process, like just everything from introducing it to them to after they adopt the child, like coming up around them after the fact and make sure they've got a good community of support. And I mean, that just comes through in this piece. And as you said, adoption is a part of, of our mission of advocacy uh, here at the RLC. And we are placing a special emphasis on that this week. And, and I'm, I'm so thankful uh, that Dr. Morton provided this piece for us uh, to just help, you know, platform this issue more because Christians, we know what kind of a gift adoption is because we ourselves have been adopted. And, uh, and so we need to be advocating for that here in this lifetime. Well, and you know, some who are listening and some believers may say, yes, adoption is good, but may feel disconnected because they think, okay, the Lord hasn't called me to actually adopt a child, but still we can all be involved. We can pray, we can support other adoptive families, we can give, we can advocate. So I would encourage listeners to still go to our site, to read this article, to read the other articles that we have in the midst of this emphasis on adoption, because really you will find something there that applies to you. And you may even have uh, the Lord shine a light on some way that you can be involved. Next up is a piece by Jessica Burke. She was on our leadership network and she is a fabulous writer. So I would encourage you to go type her name into our search engine on ERLC.com and look up the other things she has written. But this one is titled Five Reasons for Christians to Show Hospitality. And honestly, I think it fits well within our adoption emphasis because adoption is a form of hospitality. And two of the reasons I loved that she highlighted in this article were how hospitality teaches us to prioritize people and how hospitality deepens discipleship. Because as one who was single for a long time into my 30s, you know, you can, and I spent a lot of time alone, you can think that you're doing pretty well spiritually until you let others come in and quote unquote inconvenience you. And so the type of hospitality that she talks about having people over, laying them in, allowing kids to play with your kids' toys or having to clean just because you're hosting people or giving up your bed. So family that's stopping through can have somewhere to stay that teaches us that people as Jessica says, are more important things, shows us the places in our hearts where we are clinging to things above the Lord and above the things to which He calls us to. The Lord begins to chip away at those little inconveniences on our hearts so that that our hearts look more like Christ and our attitudes reflect Him in our hospitality. And then finally, you know, Advent is right around the corner, and we're going to be having a uh, several Advent resources, but I wanted to begin highlighting them. And this one is by Sarah Rice, and it's titled, Are We Enthralled by Jesus at Christmas? An Advent Guide to Help Your Family Seeds God's Glory This Season. So this is a, a book that Sarah put together. She herself has young kids, and it was born out of a need that she saw. And it is a devotional. It's got some questions for you to walk through with your family for children of all ages. And there's a guide to make ornaments so that your children can be hands-on learners and visualize the story of God with us, Christ born on earth, become man this Christmas season. 
Well, I appreciate these thoughts from Sarah Rice, and and honestly, they're timely. Uh, For us in particular at the Leatherwood household, with the Advent season being upon us, uh, we've just kind of started trying to think through what are are ways, while we still have our our kids at these uh, impressionable young ages, just continue to just drive home uh, the the true meaning of the season, and you know, just based on some of the conversations, like it's it's clear our, our kids are getting it, but uh, we just we just want to be just more intentional about the season. And I love the fact you know you just pointed out how kids can be more hands on, and we want to strive for that too. So uh, this is this is really helpful, I think, for parents out there. Yeah, so I'm thankful for people like Sarah and others. Uh, who have created resources that can be tailor-made for families so that we can magnify Christ during Christmas. And it doesn't happen perfectly, especially with little kids. So that's really not the goal, but it's just laying those foundations, as you said, Brent. Now, with the adoption emphasis this week, we have plenty of other articles on our site, uh, one talking about foster care, another talking about three scriptures to look at as you're thinking about adoption. So I would encourage you to go to our site and look at them. But Brent, for now, that's what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into the culture section, Brent, why don't you let us know what's happening this week? Yeah, Lindsay, it's been a a busy week, but there were four stories in particular I thought uh, merited us kind of discussing a little bit more here in the culture section. So this first story comes to us from NBC News and it is about drug overdose deaths. So those deaths in the United States surpassed 100,000 in a 12-month period for the first time, the CDC said on Wednesday. It is a troubling milestone amid an already devastating period for the country, according to NBC News. The report goes on to say the number of overdose deaths rose 29% from over 78,000 from April 2019 to April 2020, to 100,306 in the following 12 months. The data from the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics is considered provisional, but is a good indication of what the final numbers will show next month. Quote, it's a staggering increase for one year, said Bob Anderson, chief of the Mortality Statistics Branch at the NCHS. Quote, as we continue to make strides to defeat the COVID-19 pandemic, We cannot overlook this epidemic of loss, which has touched families and communities across the country, President Joe Biden said in a statement on Wednesday. Looking at various states, Vermont saw the biggest rise with a nearly 70% increase. Large increases were also observed in West Virginia, a 62% increase, Kentucky, a 55% increase, Louisiana, a 52% increase, and Tennessee with a 50% increase. And Lindsay, we have talked over the last, uh, well, couple of years, actually, about these growing uh, sorts of deaths of despair. And look, rightfully, a lot of our attention has been focused on the pandemic, on efforts to beat back the COVID-19 uh, disease. But lost in the midst of that are, are people that are suffering from all sorts of, of afflictions be it, you know, loss of community and and loneliness and and drug overdoses. And this is just something as Christians we need to be mindful about. Yeah, those statistics that you mentioned, the percentage increases in several of those states are just really staggering. 70% in Vermont, and it's 
the thing that hit me when you were talking about it was that it's easy to read those and forget that behind those statistics are people. There's people that have died that have caused those percentages to rise. And as we often talk about at the ERLC, but as believers, these represent people who are image bearers, who are made in God's image in the Imago day that we should care about, that we should have an urgency about um, because there is an eternity at stake. And I don't know what that means per se for how we can each be involved, except for the fact that really we just start where we are by getting to know our neighbors. Because I venture to say that in the midst of the pandemic, we all have neighbors that who are suffering from loneliness, who have contemplated taking their lives, who have been in the midst of depression and anxiety. And that's one way that we can help minister to them and alleviate these things is just by being a good neighbor and loving them. And the other thing is, I just, I wonder, I haven't read the article, but I would like to know where some of these overdoses are coming from, meaning does it have to do with COVID? Is it a a direct result like depression and anxiety? Or uh, is it opioid involved, which we have had an article about that on our site, or, or just substance abuse in general? Just food for thought there is making me think. But more than anything, just remembering to be a good neighbor and to reach out to someone because you don't know if you could be the difference there mm. in their lives. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great reminder uh, and, and certainly given, given this story a timely one. Okay, next, moving over to a story from ABC News. And let me just set this up real quick. So y'all, you know, uh, back in January, January 6th uh, of this year, there was an attempted coup at the United States Capitol. Uh, We should be very clear about this. Uh, Now, folks might have different feelings on the severity of the threat, but whether it was the Three Stooges storming the Capitol or an actual armed mob, uh, whatever, wherever it would span on that spectrum, I would categorize anything that attempts to thwart the carrying out of the constitutional process is, in fact, uh, an attempted coup, uh, an insurrection. And I I personally feel that way uh, because I used to work in the United States Capitol, uh, have fond memories of that time, feel that the people who work in that building in particular are actually a part of the mission field that the ERLC is called to witness to and and to serve. So, you know, obviously I'm... I'm personally attached to that place. Uh, But uh, needless to say, uh, there were individuals who, in an unauthorized fashion, entered the grounds of the Capitol and overtook uh, the U.S. Senate chamber and attempted to to do so in the U.S. House. And needless to say, it is something that we are still uh, just kind of dealing with and parts of the cases against those individuals, uh, those are working their way through the courts. And ABC News is reporting that Jacob Chansley, who is the self-described QAnon shaman, who infamously marched through the U.S. Capitol with a spear and a horned helmet during the January 6th riot, was sentenced Wednesday to 41 months in prison for his role in the attack. It matches the longest sentence handed down to any January 6th participant following the 41-month sentence handed down last week 
to Scott Fairlam, a former mixed martial arts fighter who pleaded guilty to assaulting a police officer during the riot. Prosecutors called Chansley a key figure in the Capitol attack. Further in the story, it reports this. On Wednesday, prior to sentencing, Assistant U.S. Attorney Kimberly Paschal played social media recordings of Chansley in the Senate chamber, chanting what sounded like a bizarre prayer and blowing a bullhorn. Quote, that is not peaceful, Paschal said. That is chilling. And that's true. Uh, these folks gathered in the U.S. Senate chamber and were just doing all sorts of uh, objectionable things. And so now they are beginning, uh, these individuals are, are beginning to face the legal consequences of those actions. And as they should, they should face legal consequences. And, you know, anything that is threatening to put people's lives in danger should be dealt with. And as we saw, this riot led to the deaths of several people. And it didn't have to be that way. And it shouldn't have been that way. And it should not be something that happens again and should come with penalties that will uh, keep people from doing this again. So it's just a sad, sad chapter in our nation's history that I think will continue to take years for us to be able to interpret. Right. And look, I, I understand there's a lot of people that are upset about the way the 2020 election turned out. I, I totally get that. Uh, I've been a part of numerous elections where I've been very disappointed with the turnout. But this is not the natural reaction to that. We are a nation that is marked by the peaceful transition of power. And again, I, I understand that the there are those of us who feel that the stakes are very high. Uh, and, and no doubt there are important issues that we are sussing out in the political space in our country right now. But the actions that we saw on January 6th, we should be able to all agree, particularly as Christians, like, man, that's just, that's not the way that we resolve things. And, and look, if you are tempted to, to just wave this off, please don't, because there are, take out some of the political personalities probably a number of us as we're thinking through this, we're thinking through maybe senators that we don't agree with or members of Congress. Take those folks out. Think of the staff members who in many cases uh, just kind of go about their daily job uh, serving these elected officials or, or serving in capacities in the Capitol that actually have nothing to do with politics. Uh, they just kind of anonymously show up every day and do their best to, to serve the American people. Well, we know a number of those staff members, and there are dozens upon dozens of these people who are still going through counseling, uh, who are still wrestling with, I mean, what amounts to PTSD uh, from that day. So please don't, don't harden your heart uh, because of some of the politics around this towards these individuals, because there's still folks that we need to be thinking of and, and praying over that uh, some of these tensions that are present in our politics right now don't ever reach that magnitude again, where people who are are trying to serve this country feel that their very lives are in in danger again because of that service they are they are rendering. So, uh, so yeah, let's just be mindful. And and this story uh, was was just I thought a helpful reminder for us to to just kind of discuss a little bit. All right, these next two stories come to us from our Baptist Press, our great folks there. So let's talk about those. 
Emerging from the pandemic, most churches don't seem to be underwater financially, but many are treading water. Around half of U.S. Protestant pastors say the current economy isn't really having an impact on their congregation, according to a LifeWay research study. The 49% who say the economy is having no impact on their church marks the highest percentage since LifeWay research began surveying pastors on this issue in 2009. Almost two in five pastors, which represents about 37%, say the economy is negatively impacting their congregation, while 12% say the economy is having a positive impact. Both positive and negative numbers are down from September 2020, when 48% said the economy was hurting their congregation and 15% said it was helping. The two years prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, 2018 to 2019, marked the only two times in the survey's more than 12-year history that more pastors said the economy was having a positive impact than a negative one. And this comes from Scott McConnell, who is incredible, uh, over at LifeWay Research. He's the executive director there. He said this, Most churches are taking a deep breath financially following the uncertainty of the height of the pandemic. While the official recession ended quickly in April 2020, economic growth has been uneven, and few churches are feeling actual positive impacts from the economy at this point. And, um, you know, we talked about last week, we spent some time talking about uh, the pressures caused by inflation that a lot of us are, are feeling uh, in, in our wallets and, and pocketbooks, and churches aren't immune to that. And, and so, you know, we need to continue, obviously, being faithful givers. Scripture calls us to do that to our churches. Uh, but at the same time, you know, these, these economic realities, uh, our, our churches are experiencing those too. And, uh, and we just hope that there's a lot of good going on in the economy right now. There's also some things that, that are kind of weighing it down, and we, we hope we are able to move past some of those. Well, and on the positive front, I think it just speaks to the Lord's kindness and faithfulness. Of course, He would have still been faithful if churches were really struggling, but it's just kind of Him to provide churches with some stable giving during the pandemic and the fact that these churches can say that they have not been negatively affected. It's just God's kindness and just removes a stumbling block in order for churches to be able to continue to work in their communities, to be able to share the gospel. And at the same time, we also need to acknowledge and and thank and be grateful for our pastors and Southern Baptists uh, across uh, the country because the cooperative program is, is in pretty good shape. It really is. And that sort of faithful giving by our churches and, and by our partners through the state conventions, like that, that allows us to continue doing this work. And so it, you're, you're absolutely right. God is, even in this season where there's certainly been challenges presented by COVID-19 and, and by the economy, like we're still doing well. And uh, we just, we hope that all of our churches, uh, because I think we even talked about last week with some of these inflation uh, pressures, the large parts of the country that are kind of in the middle of the country, in the heartland of America, those are the communities uh, that are especially feeling the, the squeeze right now, more so than, than really on the coasts. Well, a large part of our, our Southern Baptist Convention uh, is is in that that heartland of America, and uh, and and so we just uh, we're thankful for pastors who are navigating all of this with wisdom and uh, and grace. Then this final story also comes to us from from Baptist Press, and it's actually about us at the ERLC. Religious freedom concerns for faith based childcare programs plague President Biden's Build Back Better Act as it nears apparent action 
by Congress, according to the Southern Baptist's ethics entity. The ERLC and other organizations have urged congressional members to revise provisions in the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package, which is also known as the Build Back Better Act. They say the legislation will prevent faith-based centers and schools from participating in good conscience in the proposal's expansive pre-K and child care programs. Its mandates, the RLC and others say, would affect the practice of faith-based recipients if they choose to participate in such areas as hiring, admissions, and teaching. It could open providers to requirements regarding gay and transgender rights that conflict with their religious beliefs. And so this quote, our director of public policy, Chelsea Soblick, who runs our Washington, D.C. office, she's quoted in the story saying, faith-based groups play a vital role in providing quality child care and pre-K education to America's children. These organizations must have the freedom to serve parents and children according to their religious beliefs. Many non-public schools intentionally avoid federal financial recipient status because of how it could subject them to troubling provisions related to sexual orientation and gender identity language that raises serious religious liberty concerns. The Build Back Better proposal must respect the religious freedom of these institutions. And that's it. I mean, that she summed it up nicely there at the end. We continually are advocating, not just on this, but on other pieces of legislation, that as lawmakers in the U.S. Capitol or in state capitals, as they are considering various provisions, if they are affecting the faith community, they need to do so in a way that respects religious freedom. And we say it all the time, but we're grateful for our team in D.C., specifically Chelsea Sobolik, who has been operating for a long time as a team of one, and now she's got another colleague to stand by her side there. But we're so thankful for their advocacy and the work that we get to do as a whole as the ERLC concerning religious freedom. We have mentioned it before, but we have an article that Chelsea put together titled ERLC Concerns with Build Back Better that will help you to understand some of the things that we're more um, cautious about and concerned with in the plan. Now, there are good things in the plan too, but this just highlights some of the important things that have to do with the issues that we care about and advocate for. On a way less important note, every time I hear Build Back Better, I just want to say it five times fast. <laughs> well, why don't you go ahead and do that for the audience? Okay. Yeah, let's see build if you can do better, it. Build Back Better, Build Back Better, Build Back Better, Build Back Better, Build Back Better. Yeah, but you're really, you're really kind of sacrificing the D on the build, it's more like Bill back better. And I mean, yeah, I'm fun. sure everyone named William out there appreciates that, but I feel like we didn't get the full build. Oh, my word. Yeah. That was a dad joke. Wah, wow. Wah, wah, oh, my word. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, on that comedic note, Lindsay, that's your look at this week in culture. Well, thanks, Brent. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent? What are you bringing to the table today? Well, Lindsay, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, as we're recording this, I, I just was able to attend most of the sessions of the Tennessee Baptist Convention, which is hosted annually by our Tennessee Baptist Mission Board. And uh, it, it's just a great reminder uh, that, you know, we get together each summer for the Southern Baptist Annual Meeting each June. And I'm thankful to see friends and and pastors uh, and messengers assemble from across the convention at that. And then look, each fall, our, our states get together and uh, they they come together 
to try and just chart a path forward as a state convention of churches. And, and I'm just so thankful uh, for our, our conventions that lead these efforts. And oftentimes, a, a lot of good work is done there, a lot of opportunities for fellowship. And uh, one of the things that happened this year at the Tennessee Baptist Convention is the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board has had a partnership with Send Denver, and um, they were just recognizing this partnership that's done a lot of good both here and in Colorado. And uh, one of the gentlemen came from Denver and said, I want to present Dr. Randy Davis, who's the head of the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board. I want to present him uh, with a gift showing our appreciation from all of us in Denver and he gave him a Denver Broncos jersey of Peyton Manning. Well, this is funny because Randy Davis is a huge Alabama fan. And so for him to get uh, a jersey of Peyton Manning up on stage in front of everybody, it was just fantastic. And uh, there was just some other great little jokes. Pastor uh, Chesser from First Baptist Hendersonville, he's been serving as the president of the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board, and uh, he just was running the running the show there uh, with great aplomb and good humor. There's a lot of good jokes. So, you know, Baptists, when we get together, yes, you know, we get together and there's often meetings about meetings. Okay, that happens in every church. There's also a lot of good times and a lot of good jokes, and, and that, that certainly happened at this year's Tennessee Baptist Convention. So, if you're a Southern Baptist out there, let me tell you this. To quote President Josiah Bartlett, decisions are made by those who show up. And so you should show up. If you're a Southern Baptist, go ahead and become a messenger uh, on behalf of your church and show up to your next state convention because there's a lot of, there's a lot of good that happens there and a, a lot of uh, a lot of decisions are made that, that probably require some wisdom that that maybe uh, you could provide. And if you already are a messenger, to your respective state convention, like, hey, I'm, I'm proud of you. Thank you for for your service for doing that because that is what, uh, that is what our convention of churches needs. I'm sure it was a great time, Brent, and that there was great worship through music. What is more important, though, is where there are two or more Baptists gathered together. Was there food? Lots of food. Good food. Yeah, Good food. On uh, Monday night, I went to the African American Fellowship. Uh, dinner that was that was held, and it, I should mention, shout out to my local church uh, here in Middle Tennessee, Brentwood Baptist. Uh, they served as the host for this year's Tennessee Baptist Convention, and so yeah, on Monday night I, I went to uh, the African American uh, banquet, and it was so good, uh, so good. Ternay Jordan, pastor out of Chattanooga, he is the incoming pastors conference president for Tennessee, and uh, he worked with us previously on our racial unity uh, initiatives here at the URLC. And so, so glad to see that uh, Pastor Jordan is is going to be the Pastors Conference president. And I got to meet his wife, the First Lady, Mrs. Jordan. So really, really good to break bread with them. That's awesome. And I know that your cup is filled to overflowing by spending time with as many people as you possibly can. So you were probably, it's probably like you were geared up on jet fuel. I'm, I'm raring to go, Lindsay Nicolay. I'm <laughs> yes, raring to go. You're ready and raring to go, I am so sure. Uh, well, you know, for my lunchroom, one of the things I wanted to share was this article that I came across and really haven't had 
a ton of time to digest, but it has just been intriguing. One of our colleagues actually shared it as well. It's titled, well, it's from The Dispatch by Yuval Levin. It's titled, The Changing Face of Social Breakdown. Pathologies of Unruliness are Being Displaced by Pathologies of Passivity. And I wanted to read this paragraph for you. A fuller understanding of flourishing would see it as achievable, the flourishing and and such, not by a proper sequencing of solitary choices, but by a proper layering of embedded commitments to others. So examples he gives parents and siblings and teachers, coworkers, colleagues, wives, husbands, children, neighbors, friends, God, to God and to country, not God and country per se. A life lived embedded within such relationships of obligation is the answer to all the unrequited yearnings knocking around our society now and driving everybody crazy. And then he goes on to say, such a vision of a life well-lived and loving commitment to others stands a better chance of showing people both what they have to gain by coming off the sidelines and what they have to lose by recklessness. And I loved that last sentence, that God has has just embedded it in us as we're made in His image to want to be in community, whether we know it or not. We are designed for community. We're designed for commitment. We're designed for the cultural mandate to take something that He's given us and to make something beautiful out of it and to see it flourish. And both being passive and not taking part in those things and those institutions, and also by going off the rails and doing things out of their proper God-intended order, like sex outside of marriage, children outside of marriage, et cetera, does not satisfy and leads to chaos, really, essentially, and leads to less than flourishing. So I, I appreciated this article. Of course, as believers, looking at it from God's Word, we might come to some different conclusions or work it out in a different way, but I, just the nuts and bolts of what he was talking about really, really encouraged me and resonated with me. Well, as we have said before on this podcast, anytime Dr. Yaval Levin write something down about an observation that he has in culture. Generally, he's he's observing stuff about about policy and and politics, but honestly, anytime if if you're a if you're a conservative out there, which the vast majority of our audience is, you will find probably something really meaningful in in what he is observing uh, right now. And sounds like this is this is exactly that. Well, I think that's a great place to end, Brent. And just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. In addition to listening to our podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, and it's hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobelik. Search for Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.